For those I haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, I'm Jason. I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. And I normally say this at the end of the service, but if you want to get connected to our church, find out more about our church, on the back of the bulletin, there's a QR code on the very bottom that you could scan. Uh, you'll get a link, and we just you could let us know how to be in touch with you, and we'd love to share more about us and for you to get to know more people in this community. So everybody faces temptation. Temptation in and of itself is not a sin. We know that Jesus faced temptation, and the Bible tells us that he was sinless, right? He lived his entire life as a person who was sinless, even though he faced temptation. So we all face temptation, and it's not sinful to experience temptation. Our temptations also will be different from each other's. Some of the underlying things might, underneath it might be the same, but on the surface at least, it'll look different. Here's an example. Uh, Jothi and I were discerning the call to plant a church about... I guess 11 years ago, something like that. Yeah, 11 years ago. And I got to tell you, with, with the desire to do something holy and good and wonderful, there was also some wounds and insecurities that fueled some sinful desires as well. Like there was a desire for approval, for attention, for success in the eyes of others. And so even leading up to the time we were planting, it was just this battle, this temptation that wanted to start a church that was going to be large and grow famous really fast. Now, I, I, wanna, I'm, I would go out on a limb, I guess, to say, maybe it's not going out on a limb, that most of you at night don't lay on your bed at night thinking, oh, I just wish we had a large church, right? Wish we could have a church that just grows really fast and it's famous and it's big. That's probably not your temptation. Sounds kind of odd that someone would be tempted by that, right? Well, my, some of the underlying things might be the same, but yeah, that does sound odd. The temptation we explore today also may sound odd to you. The temptation is work. You might say, what? Like, who is tempted by work? Like, who, like, we could think of certain categories that we all might fall under when it comes to, um, like, maybe when it comes to sex or sexuality or when it comes to alcohol and, like, food and certain other things that we all find, maybe most of us find pleasure in, right? We could find, see those as categories for temptation, but work? Like, who is tempted by work? That sounds like an odd thing to say. Well, that's what our series is about. We've been looking at temptations in the wilderness, the temptations that the people of Israel faced as they were wandering in the wilderness, waiting in a season of uncertainty, waiting and hoping for the unfolding of God's promise. And you can think about, metaphorically, your own wilderness experience. Maybe you're waiting for an answer to prayer, waiting for rescue or deliverance of some kind, or maybe, even if... It's not the outcome that you want. You just want to see God's faithfulness. Like, I'm at a point where I, it doesn't matter what the outcome is. I just want to see your goodness, the story that you're writing, and that all of this, when I reflect on it, I will see your faithfulness through it all. Well, one of the temptations we face when we're waiting is work. Now, let me explain what I mean. What do I mean by work? Well, really, at the heart of it is an inability to rest. The temptation that we face in the wandering and the waiting is this, this desire to be active and to do things and to be just be at a frenetic pace because of this restlessness that's within. It's an inability to rest. Now, our work in whatever capacity you work today is a good thing. We think that work, because of the toil and the struggle that it's a result, 
that work in and of itself is a result of sin or a result of the fall. It's not. God had told Adam and Eve before the fall that they were to cultivate creation. It was something that was before the fall. It's good. It's a way to collaborate with God to reflect him in the way that we create and draw out the goodness of creation. Work is good. But then there's work that's fueled by a restlessness because of wounds or insecurities or because of our fallenness. And today we'll see that the people of Israel in the wilderness were commanded to rest from their work. Well, how do we do that? Well, in order to do that, in order to rest, we've got to identify two things. The first thing we have to identify is the source of our restlessness and then the source of true rest. So the source of our restlessness and the source of true rest. Let's read 4 and 5. We've got a lot to read today, but let's read verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. So the context of this passage is that God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he did it with wonders. He did it with a mighty hand. Some of the most famous, one of the most famous stories of this is when they were in front of the water, the Egyptians were behind them, right, like going after them, pursuing them to overtake them, and God parted the sea so that they could cross through on dry land. And as if that were not, as if that were not enough, he led them day and night with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He would guide them every single day, but they grumbled for food. And despite his wonder, they did this. They grumbled for food, and yet God provided them manna and quail. He provided food for them. But this was his instruction. Every day they were to gather enough for that day, right? They were to go out and get enough for that day, and it was about two quarts per person, right? They were supposed to go and gather. And then after that, they were supposed to eat it right away. If they didn't eat it, if they saved some of it, the next day, as we're going to see in a moment, it was going to stink, it would be filled with maggots or worms and other things, right, if they saved any of that food. So they had to eat it right away. And the third thing was, on the sixth day, they were to gather twice as much so that they could rest on the Sabbath and not have to go out and gather food that day. But here's what's key about what we just read. God did this to test them. Like, if you think about the path that he took the people of Israel, right, there were, if you're thinking about efficiency, there was, there were, there's a more efficient way that God could have taken them to the land, but he intentionally brought them through this particular path and brought them to the wilderness and gave these instructions so that he could test them. In other words, begin to unearth the quality of their faith. For us, in seasons of waiting, right, in wandering, what's unearthed is the source of our restlessness, now let's read 16 through 30. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall, take each, you shall each take an omer, it's about two quarts, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever had gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. That's amazing that your appetite adjusts to what you gather. It's amazing. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. 
but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stink. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the and, and all when all the leaders of the congregation of Moses Oh, I guess this was cut off. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's not. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested. On the seventh day. So they were supposed to go out and gather two quarts of food per person and eat it on that day. And what happened? Well, uh, some people decided not to, uh, decided to save some of it and it began to stink and there were maggots and worms and all, of, all other kinds of things that began to form in it, right? It, you couldn't eat it anymore. It had been spoiled. And then they were gathered to, supposed to gather twice as much on the sixth day and not go out on the seventh, but some of them decided to go out on the seventh day anyway and found that there was no food there, no manna there. They didn't listen. And God says to them, look, I'm giving you the Sabbath as a gift, Like, I'm telling you to rest. This is a gift for you, but you are still going out and looking for food. Or you're still preserving the food as if you're not going to have enough, right? You're holding on to it because maybe you're unsure that you're going to have enough for the future, and you're going out and still looking for food when you're not supposed to be. You should be resting. But why doesn't it feel like a gift? Why on earth does a call to rest feel like a burden to bear? Or something to avoid. Why wouldn't they listen? What is the source of this restlessness? One of the reasons it might have been challenging is that they were farmers, right? So when you think about resting from work, depending on what you do, you probably think about, okay, I'm not going to get up. Maybe I won't brush my teeth this morning. Maybe I won't shower, get dressed, and go out and do whatever it is that I do, depending on what you work in, right? Like going and get food, getting food, that doesn't feel like work to us, right? But if you can imagine, this was an agrarian society. This was an agricultural society. Many of them were farmers, and they knew what that work entailed. You have to go out and get food, and you, you don't just harvest whatsoever, whatever is there that day. You always plan in advance. So if you can imagine what this was like for them, this required faith. They were supposed to just get what they needed for that day and kind of go against their natural tendency as farmers to prepare ahead of time. So this faith showed itself in restraint. Or maybe one way to think about it is rest for you, just like for them. If you think about the common denominator, is faith that shows itself in restraint. You're restraining or refraining from working because of faith that you have in God that he is going to provide. Another reason this might have been challenging, and maybe you can identify this with this in seasons of wandering and waiting, is that they were in a wilderness. 
Like when you're out in the wilderness, you're not home. If you're in a season of uncertainty, of waiting, of wandering, you're waiting for the unfolding of God's promise, you feel your vulnerability. All you want to do is be out of this stage. All you want to do is get to the land. You want to be like all the other nations of the world who have their land, who are settled, and God intentionally has you in this place. And all you want to do is be free of your vulnerability. And in the midst of that, God's presence and promise to provide ought to have reassured them. I want to ask you, does it reassure you in the wilderness? Does it alleviate that sense of vulnerability you face as you wait? Do you find yourself restless or somehow, how would I say this? Does work become the way you rest? Hopefully that will become clear a little later, all right? But um, in his book, Playing God, author Andy Crouch has a chapter on Sabbath. And this is what he writes, and I think it's instructive for us today. Is there a day of the week where we can honestly say that we do not work? In particular, as our power has increased, what has happened to our Sabbath observance? Has it become deeper, faithful, more joyful? Or has the idol of false God playing driven us ever more toward busyness and 24-7 control. As with all spiritual disciplines, Sabbath observance serves perfectly as both diagnosis and prescription. Our ability to disengage from activities that give us identity, meaning, and agency in our public worlds will tell volumes about whether or not our activity is fruitful, image-bearing, or increasingly desperate God-playing. What's he saying there? He's saying Sabbath is like a diagnosis and it's a prescription, right? Rest is the prescription, but it's also a diagnosis that exposes our restlessness. To rest means you have to disengage from things that give you identity. You have to disengage from things that give you meaning, to disengage from things that give you agency. And instead, what do we do? We make the intentional desire in that restraint to find our identity in God, meaning in God, and our ultimate sense of agency and power in God. Now, there are many things you could say is probably at the heart of our restlessness. For Israel, who knows what it was? It could be greed as it relates to food. Maybe they had enough, but they just wanted more. And it's never enough, so you got to keep working, you got to keep hustling, you got to keep doing what you got to do, because you may never have, you can never have enough, right? So it could have been greed, or it could have been fear. If I don't go and do this, God's not going to give me what I need, right? If I don't go and provide for myself, if I don't keep this pace, then I'm not going to ever have enough. Whatever it is, whether it's greed or fear, what's at the heart of it is lack or scarcity of some kind. I remember when, when COVID hit, you know, we, had, we at that time, we, we, you know, we, we didn't have any kind of social media presence or anything like that. We really didn't invest our time there. And so when we could not physically gather as a community, we had to pivot to on being online. And there was a, a huge learning curve there for us, right? We didn't have any of the technology or the equipment to be able to record services or, or any of that. We thought it was going to be seven weeks. I still remember when we had like seven weeks worth of songs prepared. We think, okay, we're going to be out of this in seven weeks. Well, it was much longer than that. We had to pivot. 
Uh, we, as soon as we couldn't gather, we were like, well, we're going to focus our energy on something. We had launched as a church for three weeks, and so we thought we're going to be about the neighborhood. We wanted to put care packages together for the elderly. And then when we couldn't do that because we got COVID, we realized, like, okay, what are we going to do? So we pivoted again. Jyothi and I, Jyothi's a counselor at RCS, and I'm a pastor. We started to do Instagram live sessions for counseling and try to help people through whatever crisis they were going through on Instagram live, right? We did home groups where people get gather in their homes. We started a food pantry in the neighborhood. Here's one thing I could not do in the middle of all that. I couldn't rest. I couldn't stop. I felt, it felt like survival, right? Like if I don't keep working, if I don't come up with new ways to, to engage people, to serve the church, if I don't, if I, if I stop, we might fail. This thing might die. Rest required me to face my soul. And questions that I wanted to avoid. Like, why God? Why like this? Like, what are you doing? Like, what's your purpose in all this? Where are you leading me, God? Where are you leading us? Where resting forced me to stop and consider my fear that maybe this thing is not going to last. And because I could do all of these things, but one thing I couldn't do was rest. Well, because I continued that pace, it ultimately led, as I've said before, to depression and burnout. My question for you today is, in the wilderness and in the waiting, as I said before, is your work an attempt to actually rest from something else? Is your work a, a way to avoid what seems even more taxing, more exhausting, more tiring, which is to face the darkness, maybe the truth about your own soul, things that you don't want to confront? Is it fueled by greed, by fear, or lack or scarcity of some kind that you feel? Is it an attempt to cling to identity, to meaning, to agency? Why is it, like the people of Israel, we don't receive the call to rest as a gift? What is the source of our restlessness? Think about it before we move to the second thing. Now the source of true rest. So what was God doing here? If you are type A, if you're like, man, I'm all about efficiency, streamlining things, like cutting and trimming the fat, like I just want to, let's, let's maximize our efficiency. What God does here seems incredibly inefficient, okay? So the first thing he does is he provides this miracle every day. It's kind of, in, it's incredible. 40 years, every day he provides your food. Every day. It's not like I'm, I'm going to order Whole Foods and I'm going to have enough for the week and then do it again every week and it's like on repeat. It's automatic, right? They tell you what your preferences are. It's not that. Like every day you go out and you find what God has given. He did that for 40 years, provided their daily food, okay? The next thing he did is that he told them, eat it on that day, right? And no, don't wait because it's going to stink. <laughs> it's going to go moldy and it's not going to be edible anymore, right? There's going to be all kinds of bugs and stuff in it. So he's, he says, go and make sure you eat it on that day. Now, what's interesting about this is it's related to the third thing that he instructed them. Gather twice as much on the sixth day so you can rest. But what do you notice about what happens to that food? It doesn't go bad, right? Like, like you can gather food on the Sabbath, and for some reason that one doesn't stink. Like, that, that particular food that you, manna you gather, like, that doesn't go bad. Clearly shows that God could add preservatives if he wanted to, right? Like, he could preserve the food, but he chose not to. 
Now, what's he doing here? This is incredibly inefficient. What does God want from them? It appears that God wants them to normalize a posture of dependence and trust in the wilderness. Every day you rely on him. And you go against what you think is best for yourself. You go against what you know when your natural tendency as a farmer and as an expert in your field. You go against those things and you trust God and you stay in a posture of dependence and trust. That becomes your way of life in comparison to all the other nations of the, of the world. Your posture is to be one of, as a people of God, a posture of dependence and trust. So what does this require? What is the source of their rest? Well, if they're going to do this, they can't continue to have a relationship with their neediness and their dependence. They can't have, they have to be able to make peace with it. Like, they've got to normalize it. Like, in order to be able to truly rest, we've got, they've had to be able to depend upon God and trust Him. When, we, when I say we normalize our need for God, what I mean is we don't apologize for it. We don't see it as something that's unnatural. In his book, uh, Sensing Jesus, Zach Eswine talks about the three ways that we try to be like God. There are ways that we were made to be like God, right? That are like we are moral, we, make, we are meaning-making creatures, we are relational, we have the capacity for love. Many ways that we reflect God. But we experience anxiety when we try to be like God in ways that we were never supposed to be. When we try to be all-powerful and try to get people and circumstances to bend to our will. When we try to be all-knowing, and we wish we could know the future and all the variables in our decisions. When we try to be everywhere, right, try to be in more than one place at once, try to transcend time and space, and we realize we're, we're local. We can't be everywhere. We can't do everything. And our anxiety is often a form of grief in, what we, in, in not being strong enough, in not knowing enough, and not being everywhere. And what he says, there's a line that he says in his book that I think is, well, was definitely ministered to me. You don't have to repent of not being all-knowing. You don't have to repent of not being all-powerful. You don't have to repent of not being everywhere. You have to repent of trying. You have to repent of not resting in who God has made you to be. We don't apologize for our neediness. We don't repent of it. We embrace it. And in fact, as Paul discovers in 2 Corinthians 12, we learn to even boast about it. It's not just making peace like, okay, we're cool, me and my neediness. No, we learn to go all the way in the other direction and we boast of our weakness and we say, this is the best thing about me, that though I am weak, God is strong and he is sufficient for me. This is our way of life in the waiting. And the way you see it is in your faith-filled restraint. So think about that. What are the things that God is calling you to restrain yourself from as an act of faith? Well, you have to move towards the discomfort, and that's the way to rest. You see, we learn to make peace with our, our neediness when we live with what God gives and not strive for more. And that's going to apply to every single one of us differently, depending on what you're striving for. When you make peace with what God has given and not strive for more, that's a way to make peace with your dependence. Or you move towards a discomfort, of, and instead of saying you don't have enough, you believe that God has given enough, or he will give you whatever it is that you need. Therefore, we can rest. But how do we do that? I mean, how do we actually get there? How do we make peace with this dependence? 
want you to remember for the people of Israel, and as we're going to see, even for us, that God's saving love and power, the demonstration of his saving love and power preceded the call to rest and the command to rest. That means that before God them gave, gave them any command, he demonstrated how much he loved them, he demonstrated his power to save them in the midst of their neediness before he called them to rest, while they were in their slavery. The miracle of salvation should have fueled their confidence that they can rest, that God who saved them when they had nothing, when they could not save themselves, surely he will provide what they need whenever they're in the wilderness. Surely he will provide everything and give them what they need in that season, and they will lack nothing. Well, for us, we look to Jesus. The ultimate expression of God's saving love and power is seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He saved us in our most vulnerable state. He saved us when we could not save ourselves. And if you are a Christian, I realize not everyone in here is, but hopefully this will make sense to you even if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, there was a day when you saw that as good news. I don't have what it takes. I'm not good enough. I have fallen short of God's glory. I cannot save myself, but thanks be to God that Jesus is enough. He is my Savior. There was a day when you joyfully relied upon him to be everything that you needed for him to be. You made peace with your dependence and boasted that though we are not enough, he was for us. But here's the question. Why is that the case for us then but not now in our waiting? Why is it that God could be seen as strong and mighty to save in someone we joyfully rely upon in the midst of our need? Why is it true of our salvation, but why cannot it not be true of us in the call to rest, in the wilderness? If it was true for us then, why wouldn't it be true for us now? The saving love and power of God is what precedes the call to rest, the reason we could befriend our dependence and trust, what fuels that is remembering the saving arm of God in Jesus Christ. So if the source of our restlessness is lack of some kind, I can't rest because I'm not going to have enough. Or if the source of our restlessness is identity, like the quest for identity or the quest for meaning and agency, like, I've got to be on this quest and cling to these things because that's what I, where I find it. I find it in my work. Or if the source of our restlessness is in the fear of facing the dark parts of our soul, then we can look to Jesus now. And I just want to ask you, as you think about Christ, as you think about how much he's loved you and he saved you when you had nothing to bring to the table, how does thinking about Jesus as saving love and power speak to that fear of lack, to that quest for identity, and to that fear of facing the dark parts of your own soul. I remember, um, I may have shared this story with you before, but uh, when our son was, uh, when our second uh, child, Liam, when he was not even a year old, um, there was a day when I was at work and Jothi called me and said that his fontanelle, the soft part on his skull, was raised, and which meant that there was swelling in, in his head. And uh, we went to the doctor, and the doctor didn't know what, what was going on, so uh, she sent us to the ER, and she said it might be meningitis. So she wants us to immediately go to the doctor, to the ER, find out what's going on. And we went to the, to, uh, the ER, and we were 
we were so nervous, we were scared, right, what was going to happen to him. Um, and they didn't know what was going on at first. He wasn't responding to anything that they were doing. And at some point, you know, if you know our son, he's full of life, right? He's full of so much energy. And, and you, he, when he looked at you, it's like he's looking through you, like he just wasn't there. And Jyothi and I really thought that we were going to lose him. Like we had to do a CT scan. They didn't know what was going on. And they gave him a spinal tap to remove some of the fluid that was causing the swelling in his brain um, or, or in his head. Um, and they eventually determined that... Uh, that it was an adverse reaction to uh, a, a combination of, uh, well, a cocktail that they had given him, and it was a really rare thing. Uh, it's, it's going, I'm going beyond the, the story, but the point is, in the midst of that, if you could think about that, that feels like a wilderness experience. Like, you feel every hour, like, what's going to happen? Like, you're waiting, you're praying, and then you're, 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 you're doubting, you're asking God to bring you out of this, and you're trying to discern God's purpose, and trying to hope for, to see the end of this, and in the midst of all that, if someone told me, hey, just rest or take a nap, say, that sounds like the most unreasonable thing. I got to put my effort to something. I got to put my attention to something else. The call to rest seems unreasonable in a time of waiting, in a time of wandering, when you're waiting for the unfolding of God's faithfulness and his promise. But I remember, and this only by God's grace, not because of anything in us, but it shows the power of God at work in us to comfort us. Jyothi and I came together and we prayed. <laughs> Sorry. We prayed and we said, Lord, no matter what you will, you are good in all that you do. The only way we could rest, and the reason we could say that, is because he has shown his goodness. And it's not in the things that he gives today or what might be waiting for us. We see it ultimately expressed in how he's loved us in Jesus. That if he did not withhold his own son, what good thing would he ever withhold from you if it's truly good for you? If he shows us generosity to give Jesus and for Jesus to give away his life, what wouldn't he give for you now? So why couldn't we rest? He's faithful and he's good in all that he does. So when we look to Jesus and we let the cross and the gray, empty grave inform the call to rest, how will it lead you today to give up the need to strive? How will you begin to see the call to rest as a gift from God? Because no matter the source of your restlessness, whatever you identify, learning to depend on Jesus is the only way to find true rest for our souls.